A pleasing land of drowsy head it was, of dreams that wave before the half-shut eye, and of gay castles in the clouds that pass, forever flushing round the summer sky. Live from the Public Library of Steubenville and Jefferson County on South 4th Street in Steubenville, Ohio, the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company presents Cloak and Dagger on the Air and our adaptation of Washington Irving's 1820 short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, starring Ralph Parisi, Micah Underwood, and Justin Sawyer. Act One, Scene One, in which we tarry in Terrytown. In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators, the Tappan Zee, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Not far from Terrytown, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or, or rather lap of land among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it, with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over this glen and to pervade its very atmosphere. It was that high German doctor, Sansonietto, I tell you. Sansonietto, indeed. That's what my mother said. You're saying he bewitched this place? When our ancestors first settled this place, he did. Our ancestors? Who do you take me for, an English fool? Oh, perhaps I do. I heard we were bewitched by the Wakis geeks. Savages? You think savages did this? Well, my father said an old Indian chief held his powwows here long before Master Hendrick Hudson even discovered it. And what sorts of bewitching powers did this Indian chief have? Father wasn't sure, but he said he must have been a prophet or a wizard, and it's his witching power that holds us under its sway to this very day. Unbelievable. Oh, but I believe it. I do too, and I think that high German doctor helped. English fool. Mm -hmm. Certain it is, the minds of the good people of Sleepy Hollow seem to be under a persistent spell, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They're given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country. And the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambles. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. 
It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War and who is ever and anon seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley but extend at times to the adjacent roads and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter allege that the body of the trooper having been buried in the churchyard the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow like a midnight blast is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak but he has yet to find his, his head, head. Which is why the specter is known at all the country firesides as the, the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure, in a little time, to inhale the witching influence of the air and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams and see apparitions. Act 1, Scene 2, in which Ichabod Crane tarries in Sleepy Hollow. In this by-place of nature there abode, in a remote period of American history, that is to say, uh, some thirty years since, a worthy wight of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, or as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was... Allow me... I'm simply going to tell them who you are. Allow me... I am, after all, the schoolmaster and here to instruct, and a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodmen and country schoolmasters. Good for you. <clears throat> the cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. Excuse me, for what? Cognomen. Not a word. It is a word. I'm the schoolmaster, and I know all. Cognomen means your name. Oh. Well, as I tell my students, don't write around it, just say it. The cognomen... Just say it. Very well. Ichabod Crane's name was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall. Oh, yes, quite tall. Perhaps taller than anyone in this valley. I tower while others glower. <laughs> See what I did there? But exceedingly lank. I wouldn't say exceedingly. Uh, appropriately lank is more like it. With narrow shoulders. That broaden out, depending on the jacket I'm wearing. Long arms and legs. All the better for weaving amongst the trees. And reaching books on the top shelf, which is where the real knowledge is. Hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves. A mile! 
Now that's hyperbole, especially with my exceedingly short sleeves. Feet that might have served for shovels. There's farm work to be done. And his whole frame most loosely hung together. Held together by my head, which contains my exceedingly large brain. His head was small. Compact but expensive. And flat at top. Bad hair day. With huge ears. All the better to hear you with. Large green glassy eyes. All the better to see you with. And a long snipe nose so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. All the better to smell- wait. A weathercock? My nose looks like a weathercock. There's a storm brewing in the east. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. Heavy winds to the south. Oh, dear, it hasn't been my trick knee all along. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copybooks. It stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation just at the foot of a woody hill with a brook running close by and a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. From hence, the low murmur of his pupils' voices, conning over their lessons, might be heard in a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master, in the tone of menace or command, as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Mr. Vanderbor! Turn your wandering ears to me, please, for out of my mouth comes knowledge and understanding! Mr. Vanderbor, I'm standing in front of you. Mr. Well, fine, if you insist. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, Spare the rod and spoil the child. Stand up! Ichabod Crane's scholars certainly were not spoiled. Now, Mr. Vanderbor, I don't want you to think of me as some cruel potentate who receives joy in the smart of my subjects. On the contrary, I administer justice with discrimination rather than severity. I believe in taking the burden off the back of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. But, but you hit me. Because you can take it, don't you see? And because you deserved it. But I wouldn't take the rod to any mere puny stripling like Mr. Kilson over there. The second he sees the rod, he winces. No, Mr. Vanderbor, you are tough, but wrong-headed. You are a broad-skirted Dutch urchin who sulks and swells and grows dogged and solid beneath the birch of my tutelage. But you hit me. Oh, please, Mr. Vanderbor, I am simply doing my duty by your parents. And trust me, you will remember this rod, and you will thank me for it on the longest day you had to live. Class dismissed. <laughs> but he hit me. When school hours were over, Ichabod was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys. And on holiday afternoons, he would convoy some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Can you blame me? 
I'm the schoolmaster. Do you have any idea what they pay me? It's scarcely sufficient to furnish me with daily bread. It behooves me to keep on good terms with my pupils. He was also a huge feeder, and though lank, had the dilating powers of an anaconda. Is that an insult? It feels like an insult. But is it? Hmm. Hmm. But to help out his maintenance, he was, according to country custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. Let's see here. Uh, the Vanderbergs will be the first week of October. The, the Vanderbeeks the second. The Vanderhydes the third. The sister there is quite pretty. <laughs> the mother too, actually. I get them confused, but they're cooking. Mwah! Magical. And the Vandermeers. No, not the Vandermeers. Health nuts. Let's see, who else? Ah, the Vandervans. Yes, the Vandervans. Four square meals a day and a midnight snack. What's this? A footnote? Beware of sister, not pretty. Ravenous, but not for food. But remember the meat pie. Ah, yes, the meat pie. Vandervans it is. With these he lived successively a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighborhood, with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. Hold on there. You make it sound like I'm a mooch. I always do things to ensure my presence is not too onerous on the purses of my rustic patrons. After all, this is Sleepy Hollow, not Connecticut. They're apt to consider the cost of schooling a grievous burden, and schoolmasters such as myself, who are not me, of course, as mere drones. And exactly what do you do to make yourself useful and agreeable? Well, let's see. I assist the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms, help them make the hay and the fences, take the horses to water, drive the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. Impressive. But do you also lay aside the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which you lord over your little empire, the schoolhouse? But of course, I am wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. I pet the children, particularly the youngest children. Oh, yes, you are the cutest little piece of clay God ever demoted. Yes, you are. Oh, shucks. Which finds favor in the mother's eye, and like the lion bold which so magnanimously the lamb did hold, I sit with a child on one knee, and I can rock a cradle with my foot for whole hours together. They love it. The mothers and the pretty, pretty sisters. In addition to his other vocations, Ichabod was the singing master of the neighborhood and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery with a band of chosen singers, where in his own mind he completely carried away the palm from the parson. Certain it is, his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church, and which may even be heard half a mile off, quite to the opposite side of the mill pond, on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thank you, Ichabod! Thank you, Ichabod! Will you shut up, Ichabod!
Thus, by divers little makeshifts, and that ingenious way which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork to have a wonderfully easy life of it. Almighty Sing another note and I'll call you a witch! Very sorry. Act One, Scene Three, in which Ichabod tarries with the ladies. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood, being considered a kind of idle, gentlemanlike personage, a vastly superior taste and accomplishments to the rough country swains, and indeed inferior in learning only to the parson. Good day, ladies. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea table of a farmhouse. Bring on the dish of cakes the schoolmaster's here. Do you like sweet meats, Ichabod? Indeed I do. (gasps) You know, I have the sweetest meats of all, Icky. Oh, dear. Some tea, schoolmaster? Why, yes, my dear. Not from that teapot, you don't. But, uh, this is Master Ichabod Crane. He doesn't drink tea from an ordinary pot. He doesn't? I don't? In this home, you drink from the silver teapot. <laughs> <laughs> Our man of letters, therefore, was particularly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels. Isn't that right, Ichabod? Oh, indeed I am. Oh, the ways in which I charm them. Between services on Sunday, I figure among them in the churchyards. I gather grapes for them from the wild vines that overrun the surrounding trees. I recite for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, and with a whole bevy of them I saunter along the banks of the adjacent mill pond. As for the more bashful country bumpkins, oh, I see them, I really do, hanging sheepishly back, envying my superior elegance and address. (sighs) Ah, yes, my bevy of beauties. And that is not all. There's more? Oh, yes. For you see, I'm quite the traveling gazette, as it were. You mean you're a gossip? (laughs) Well, I don't mean to brag. But yes. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Because of my half-itinerant life, I have gossip to spare. And I carry the whole budget of local gossip from house to house. The women, and some of the men, are always happy to see me, and I'm greeted with the utmost satisfaction. He's also quite smart. Oh, a man of great erudition. Er, you what? Oh, just the word icky. Icky? Uh, Ichabod taught me. Erudition. Great erudition. Did you know Icky has read several books all the way through? All the way? All the way. (gasps) How many? Several. And he's a perfect master of history of New England witchcraft. (gasps) By Cotton Mather? The one and only can recite it all the way through. (gasps) All the way? All the way. Does he believe it? Oh, firmly and potently. Potent what? It's just a word that Icky... (laughs) Ichabod taught me. (laughs) Act one, scene four in which Ichabod tarries after dark. Ichabod was, in fact, an odd mixture of small shrewdness and simple credulity. 
Small? Simple? Excuse me, but my appetite for the marvelous and my powers for digesting it are equally extraordinary. Much like your appetite for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Am I being insulted? I feel like I'm being insulted. In fact, Ichabod's appetites, both of them, had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for his capacious swallow. Capacious? Indeed, teach that one to your country damsels. I shall, for you see, I am the... Yes, 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 the schoolmaster. Now you've got it. Only my schooling doesn't stop each day with the afternoon dismissal. It is often my delight, in fact, to stretch out on that rich bed of clover bordering the little brook that whimpers by my schoolhouse. I said, it is often my delight to stretch out by the little whimpering brook. Now see here, this is my story, and I insist on having a little whimpering brook. For you see, I am not just the main character, I am also the school... Cue the brooks! Thank you. Now, where was I? You were about to describe your fatefully boring afternoon ritual in excruciating detail and how you con over old Mather's direful tales until the gathering dusk of evening makes the printed page a mere mist before your eyes. Precisely. Beautifully stated. A plus, in fact. How did you know? I'm the narrator. The soothsayer of your literary existence. Ooh. Creepy. Mmm, indeed. I was about to describe how after dusk you wend your way by swamp and stream and awful woodland to the farmhouse where you happen to be quartered that week. Every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttering your excited imagination. The moan of the whippoorwill from the hillside, the boding cry of the tree toad, that harbinger of storm, the dreary hooting of the screech owl, or the sudden rustling in the thicket of birds frightened from their roost. <laughs> what? It was just a firefly. Just a firefly? Didn't you see how vividly it sparkled? Which is kind of what fireflies do. But it's really, really dark, and then whoosh! Suddenly a light of uncommon brightness streams across my path. Which is exactly what fireflies do, for my aforementioned, now twice stated observation. Ah! What now? Shh! Over there, a flying specter, a witch's token about to strike me. That's a beetle. A beetle? Yes, yeah, a huge blockhead of a beetle winging his blundering flight against you. I hate beetles! I think I'm about to give up the ghost. Oh, you poor varlet. A mighty fortress is our Oh, God. dear, what are you doing oh, now? Singing. So my ears have gathered, but why? Singing some tunes is my only resource on such occasions. When you're being attacked by fireflies and beetles? <laughs> Witches tokens! The singing drowns out thought and drives away evil spirits. Do you not see? I sing away they wing. Oh, bother. <laughs> Plus the good people of Sleepy Hollow are filled with awe at hearing my nasal melody. In linked sweetness, long drawn out, floating from this distant hill or along the dusky... We get it. Act one, scene five, in which Ichabod tarries by the fire. 
Another of Ichabod's sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth and listened to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and particularly of the Headless Horseman. A galloping Hessian of the hollow, that's what I always call him. How he rides about over hill and dale. My Hiram, Providence rested so, saw him on many occasions until that fateful day when. when. when? be a good boy, Ichabod. Check those apples, please. We don't want to overcook them. Yes, but what did your Hiram... Providence rest his soul. Uh, Providence rest his soul. What happened on that fateful day? We don't talk about that, Ichabod. But she was just talking about it. She said... Tell us more about the mysterious lights in the forest that streamed across your path as you walked here. Oh, and the flying specters. And your stories about witchcraft. Alas, this world, it is rife with direful omens, portentous sights and sounds fill the air. My Hiram used to say... Yes, your Hiram used to say what? Do be a good boy, Ichabod. Check the apples, please. We don't want to overcook them. Yes, but what did your Hiram... Providence rest his soul. Providence rest his soul. What did your Hiram used to say? We don't talk about that, Ichabod. But she was just talking about it. She said... Tell us more about the comet. Oh, and the shooting stars. But the last time I talked about the universe, you became woefully frightened by my speculations. It is alarming, Ichabod, to think that this world is turning round and round. And that half the time we're topsy-turvy. Very, Very alarming. alarming. That's what my Hiram used to say. Topsy-turvy is all topsy-turvy. Yes, but why did he say that? Do be a good boy, Ichabod. Check those apples, please. We, we don't, don't want, want to overcook them. them. Why did he say it was all topsy-turvy? Because he was a drunkard. A drunkard? He was but a... we don't talk about that, Ichabod. But she was just... Oh, forget it. But if there was a pleasure in all this, while snugly cuddling in the chimney corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood fire, and where, of course, no specter dared to show its face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards. Good night, Ichabod! Next time, we'll check the apples. I guess schoolmasters cannot be good at everything. Yes, but... I did have my heart set on Dutch apple pie. 
What fearful shapes and shadows beset his path amidst the dim and ghastly glare of a snowy night? With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window? How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow, which, like a sheeted specter, beset his very path? How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps on the frosty crust beneath his feet, and dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being tramping close behind him? And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast howling among the trees in the idea that it was the galloping Hessian on one of his nightly scourings? All these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness. And though he had seen many specters in his time, and been more than once beset by Satan in diverse shapes, in his lonely perambulations, yet daylight put an end to all these evils, and he would have passed a pleasant life of it, in despite of the devil and all his works, if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together. And that was a woman. Act two, scene one, in which Katrina tarries in Ichabod's heart. Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening in each week to receive his instructions in psalmody was Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh 18, and when Ichabod saw her, his ravishing dual lust for women and food became one. For she is plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches. Could you just hit me and get it over with? I tell you, Master Vanderbor, she is universally famed, not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. Please, I was bad in class. Hit me. Have you noticed her dress, Master Vanderbor? She is withal a little of a coquette, would not you say? not, because that sounds dirty and you might hit me, which I wish you would and get it over with instead of making me. Such intriguing taste for a woman of this hollow, a mixture of ancient and modern fashion, most suited to set off her charms, eh, Master Vanderbor? Hit me, please. She wore ornaments of pure yellow gold, which I hear her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Sardom the tempting stomacher of the olden time. And have you noticed her provokingly short petticoat, which displays the prettiest foot and ankle the country round? Master Vanderbor, why are you hitting yourself with my rod? Because, schoolmaster, it is better than listening to you drone on about my cousin. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart towards the female sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found favor in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. 
Who be you? Well, Master Van Tassel, uh... Oh, just call me Old Baltus. That's me, Old Baltus Van Tassel. The perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. Yes, sirree. Now, who are you again? Well, Old Baltus, uh, my name is... Oh, you probably done heard about me around the holler, and it's true. I seldom send my eyes or my thoughts beyond the boundaries of my own farm. And why? Because within these boundaries, Old Baltus is snug, happy, and well-conditioned he is. You see, my boy, I'm satisfied, satisfied with my wealth, but Old Baltus, he ain't proud of it. Pride goeth before the fall, the good book says it does. So you are wealthy. Oh, old Baltus is peaked with hearty abundance, he is. Oh, it don't look like much the style in which I live. Oh, no, it don't. But look round you. This be a stronghold, would it be? Right here, situated on the banks of the Hudson, nestled away in a green, sheltered, fertile nook. <laughs> oh, look above you. Tell me what you see, boy. Well, I, I see a great elm tree spreading its broad branches over your domain. And yonder at the foot of the elm? A little well formed of a barrel. And in that well, my boy, but was a spring of the softest, sweetest water that steals itself sparkling away through the grass it do. Yes, I, I see, I see. To that neighboring brook babbling among the alders and dwarf willows. Oh, I love my dwarf willows, I do as they creep quietly beneath my feet and between my little toes. <laughs> I love your dwarf willows too, old Baltus. Yet these be only the slightest of my riches, young man. Follow me, and I will show you the wonders of my wealth, I will. Not bragging, my boy. Of course not, old Baltus. Oh, just facts are lasting for the record, old Baltus is. Uh, definitely, old Baltus. And what exactly do you see, my boy, in this barn? Vast enough to be a church. I see... Treasures bursting forth from every window and crevice. Old Baltus, his cracks and crevices be full of treasure, they be. <laughs> I see rows of pigeons, some with one eye turned up, as if watching the weather. Some of their heads under their wings are buried in their bosoms, and others swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames. Old Baltus, his bosom swells and coos with the pigeons it do too. <laughs> I see sleek. Unwieldy porkers grunting in the repose and abundance of their pen. Oh, ho, ho, I have hogs, my boy. Hogs to spare, I do. Troops of sucking pigs sallying forth as if to sniff the air they do. I see a stately squadron of snowy geese riding across that pond and whole fleets of ducks and regiments of turkeys gobbling through the farmyard and guinea fowls fretting about it like ill-tempered housewives. Oh, just like old Baltus is ill-tempered little housewife. Notable though she may be, with her peevish, discontented cry. And, and over there, before the barn door, I see the gallant cock strutting about in the pattern of a husband, a warrior, a fine gentleman clapping his burnished wings and crowing in the pride and gladness of his heart. Just like old Baltus, the gallant cock and master of his domain he be. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, 
he pictured to himself... Food! Every roasting pig running about with pudding in my belly and an apple in my mouth. The pigeons likely put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese swimming in their own gravy and the ducks pairing cozily in dishes like snug married couples with a decent competency of onion sauce. In the porkers calmed out in the future, a sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham and the turkeys daintily trussed up with their gizzards under their wing and peradventure a necklace of savory sausages and even bright Chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. Oh yes! Oh yes! Food! 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 As the enraptured Ichabod fancied all this, he heard old Baltus say, In all these domains, my boy, will go to my daughter, Katrina, upon my demise. And suddenly Ichabod's heart began to yearn ever more fiercely after the damsel, plump as a partridge and sweet as a peach, and his imagination expanded beyond the idea of food, and he realized how all of these domains might be readily turned into... Cash! And how that money could then be invested in... Land! Immense tracts of land! And how he could build upon that land... Palaces! Shingle palaces! All this he fancied until he heard old Baltus's voice ringing in his ears. You okay, boy? I mean, can you hear me? I say, boy, old Baltus be talking to you. Beg pardon. I said, would you like to see old Baltus's house? You mean there's more? <laughs> old Baltus, there always be more there be. Follow me. And when Ichabod Crane entered old Baltus's house, the conquest of his heart was complete. Like old Baltus was saying, he be wealthy, not arrogant, oh sure. This be one of those spacious farmhouses with high ridge but lowly sloping woofs, but built like just like my granddaddy did, one of the first Dutch settlers in this here region. He taught me he did. Simple but humble it be. Oh sure. Old Baltus has indulged himself just a wee bit. What with that uh projecting eaves, forming the piazza along the front. <laughs> you do know what a piazza is, my boy, don't you? It's the biggest porch I've ever seen. Like a town square was brought here directly from Italy and placed in the middle of your house? Old Baltus. He had to have one or two minor indulgences from the old country, he did. But do not you mind, boy. Old Baltus can close his piazza up in bad weather, he can. This piazza, though, is where I hang my tools and my trade, I do. Oh, old Baltus' trading be success, of course. No brag, just fact. As old, as old Baltus prattled on about his livelihood and his humble wealth, the wondering Ichabod entered the hall, which formed the center of the mansion and the place of usual residence. What he saw dazzled his eyes. Rows of resplendent pewter. Arranged ever so tastefully in a long dresser. In that corner, a huge bag of the most expensive wool. Ready to be spun. Ears of Indian corn, strings of dried apples and peaches. Hung in gay festoons along the walls. Mingled with the god of red peppers. A door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor, 
where he saw a claw-footed chair and dark mahogany tables that shone like mirrors, mock oranges and conch shells, decorating the mantelpiece, and in a corner cupboard, knowingly left open, displayed immense treasures of old silver, well-mended china. And from the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and the only thought within his small yet expansive brain was, I must have this. I must have all of this. And his only study was... Her. How can I gain the affections of her, Katrina, the peerless daughter of old Baltus, the sole heir of his immense domains? In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fall to the lot of... Oh, a knight-errant of yore who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such like easily conquered adversaries to contend with, and had to make his way merely through gates of iron and brass and walls of adamant to the castle keep, where the lady of his heart was confined, all which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a Christmas pie. And then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. I, on the contrary, must win my way to the heart of a country coquette, a woman a woman beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices. Whims and caprices forever presenting new difficulties and impediments. And unlike your charges at the schoolhouse, oh great schoolmaster, you can't just swat those whims and caprices into submission. No, I cannot. You are also overlooking something else, schoolmaster. Something else that you never encounter in your classroom. And that would be? A host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood. The numerous rustic admirers who... Admirers? You mean there are others like me who wish to wed her land? I, I mean her? Oh, yes, Ichabod. You, my dear anaconda, are not alone in your capacious appetites. For these rustic admirers beset her every portal to her heart. They keep a watchful and angry eye upon each other, and they are ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Pray, what precisely do you mean? You are that new competitor, Ichabod Crane. Oh, and pray, who precisely is my competition? Act two, scene two in which Ichabod tarries in the shadow of Brom Bones. Ah, oh, Miss Van Tassel, we've been alluding to you. Yes, I am accustomed to being an illusion, as are most young women of a certain age in Tarrytown. Uh, uh, yes, of course. <clears throat> you, uh, you have another suitor. Oh dear, just what I need. He, he's inquired about his competition, and I thought it only fair that you enter our story at this point. After you've described me as food and established me as the scariest element of your tale? Oh, well, you see, I would never... I quote, And Ichabod would have passed a pleasant life of it if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together, and that was a woman. End of a quote. Oh, yes, I, I did say that. So, I am unpleasant. More so than a whole race of witches? I am merely a chronicler of my times, Miss Van Tassel. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as for your new suitor's competition... There is really only one who is the most formidable. His name is Abraham, although he prefers the Dutch abbreviation. 
Braun von Brunt. I'm a burly, roaring, roistering blade of a man. The hero of the country round. Where his feats of strength and hardihood ring from hill to dale. Broad-shouldered, double-jointed, with short, curly black hair. Naturally curly. Would you say his countenance is bluff, but not unpleasant that he has a mingled air of vote fun and arrogance? Oh yes, and do observe his Herculean frame. Oh, and his great powers of limb. That is why I'm universally known as... Brom Bones! Brom Bones! Thank you. I am also famed for my great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a Tartar. Oh yes, he is foremost at all races and cockfights. Brom Bones! And, I would say, with the ascendancy which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, Mr. Van Brunt must be the umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admitted of no gainsay or appeal. I have not a clue what you just said. (laughs) But it sounds great, and I like it! After all, I'm always ready for a fight, eh, Miss Van Tassel? Oh, yes. There is more mischief than ill will in your composition, Brom Bones. And with all your overbearing roughness, there is a strong dash of waggish good humor at bottom. Waggish? Waggish. Oh. Well, I have not a clue what you just said, but it sounds great and I like it. Brom Bones had three or four boon companions. He's our role model. We follow him wherever he scours about the countryside. He's our Zeus. We attend every scene of feud and merriment with him for miles around. He's our North Star. Brom Bones. Wait. Wait. Are there not supposed to be four of you boon companions? Four? Four? There's supposed to be four? I, I, I don't know about that. Yes, yes. I swear there should be four of you. One, two... Three... And you! Oh, you make four, Brombones! I do? Uh, well, who else could be a better boon companion to you than you? Who else? You are right, boon companion number... Two? Three! Who cares? It's just math! It all adds up, for I am my own best boon companion! Brombones! In cold weather, Brom Bones was distinguished by a fur cap surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail. And when the folks at a country gathering descried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with whoop and halloo like a troop of Don Cossacks. And the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment till the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then exclaim, Hi, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. Brom Bones! The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill. And when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, always shook their heads and warranted, Brom Bones must be at the bottom of this. Brom Bones! 
This rantipole hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina as the object of his uncouth gallantries, and though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, yet it was whispered... I think she likes him. She certainly does nothing to discourage his hopes. Nothing whatsoever. Brom Bones! What can I say? I'm bored, the piggins are slim, and I must have babies. At least that's what father tells me. Oh, Bautis, he wants to be a granddaddy, he do. And that is why all my rival candidates should take my advances as signal to retire or risk crossing a lion in a moor. A moor? What what is moor? Love. He is in love. Lay sigh. Boon companions, my horse. It's Sunday night in time for Brom Bones to go Sparking! Sparking? What is sparking? Oh, did we forget the matches? Courting! Tonight, Brombone shall court Miss Van Tassel, and may all other suitors pass by in despair and carry the war into other quarters, for Katrina Van Tassel shall be mine! Well, uh, we said, well, I don't know. Sing it. Sing what? What's he talking about? My cognomen. Sing is that? What? Is it my range? My name. Oh, Brombones. Thank you. No problem. I can sing that. And now, a sparking, I shall go. Giddy up there, devil. Giddy up. And that, Ichabod Crane, is the formidable rival with whom you must contend. Oh, well, he's nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Oh, oh, sure, a a stouter man than I would shrink from the competition. It could be argued a wiser man would despair, but I am made of stronger stuff, a a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance. In form and spirit, I am like a supple jack, yielding but tough. Though I bend, I never break. Though I bow beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it is away, jerk! I am as erect as ever, carrying my head as high as ever. Jerk is right. Act 2, Scene 3 in which Ichabod tarries in battle with Brom Bones. That's me! And so the battle lines were drawn. However, Ichabod knew that a well-honed strategy would be needed. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours, any more than that stormy lover, Achilles. Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Oh, uh, who be you? Uh, Well, Master Van Tassel... Oh, just call me old Baltus, that's me, old Baltus Van Tassel. The perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. Say, have you been to my piazza? Now, old Baltus, he don't mean to be bragging about his wealth... Old Baltus is quite satisfied. Uh, actually, Master Van Tassel, I am here to see... He's here to see me, Father. Oh, and he's a boy, and you're... Which means it's time to he be here to... Well, as singing master of Sleepy Hollow, I make frequent visits to all members of my choir. Uh-huh. Well, well old Baltus, he'd be happy to sing a little ditty for you. Well, I spend many an hour singing ditties in my piazza, I do. 
Have I shown you my piazza? Biggest piazza around in these parts. No brag, just fact. Oh, no, don't worry. No, it can be covered up in the winter. Father, Master Crane is here to instruct oh, me. Oh, who's Master Crane? I am, sir. So that be your name. <laughs> Old Baltus, he be trying to remember it if this the whole time he be. But now that he knows, he will always remember it. Father. Old Baltus, he can take a hint. He can. He don't want to be meddlesome, you see. I believe in clearing the path for lovers. Not being a stumbler and blocking it. Besides, Old Baltus loves his daughter better than he loves his pop, he do. Why, Old Baltus let her have her way in everything. Father. Oh, and, and as old Bouchers ill tempered but notable little wife once observed, ever so sagely, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after. But girls can take care of themselves. That's what old Bouchers ill tempered but notable little wife once said. Father! Well, I'll be in my piazza with my pipe. Oh, old Bouchers loves his piazza, he do. And his pipe. Biggest piazza in all the side of the Hudson. And now, Master Crane, we are alone. We are. Shall we take our singing lesson to the Great Elm? Perhaps work on pitch and tone by the side of the spring? Perhaps. Then maybe we can perfect our scales as we saunter along in the twilight. At that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. And by night's end we shall make beautiful music together. Isn't that right, Master Crane? Lead the way, Miss Van... Katrina. Lead the way, Katrina. I always do. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me, they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter. For man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown. But he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones. And from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interest of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Boggy! More rock gut for the room. Oh, easy, Brom. You're bound to keel over with more rock gut in your pot gut. I am a chivalrous man. Oh, uh, we're rough. You're quite chivalrous. To a degree. Oh, it's a rough chivalry, one that bespeaks your warrior stature. Precisely, which is why I, here and now, raise my fist and declare open warfare on the schoolmaster. Open warfare, Brom. We shall settle our pretensions to the lady's heart. But Brom, what will warfare settle? You yourself said I am a warrior. I didn't say that. Number one said that. Well, you should all say it. Everyone in the countryside should know that Brom Bones is descended from the knights errants of yore. And everyone in this countryside should know how the knights of Errantry of yore defended the honor of their ladies' love. Yes, Brom, they should know. How? 
by single combat. So single combat? I will double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse. Oh dear. Who said that? Ichabod, is that you? Shh. I'm spying on the enemy. Spying on the enemy? Did you hear what he just said? Oh, about doubling you up on the schoolhouse shelf? Uh, Shh. Oh, I didn't hear nothing, bro. V-fi-fo-fum. I smell the blood. Oh, oh well, Dutchman, Brom. But we're not all schoolmasters. You see, he thinks like a barbarian. Search the bar, boys! Find me the icky crane! He thinks that combat is the only way to settle a matter as delicate as the heart. Uh, but, Brom, not here. What would Katrina think? She would think I'm a man of might who would defend his lady alone. Against a soft and lanky schoolmaster? You who has superior might? One, two, three, wait. Either I've had my share of Raka, or there are four of you. Listen to me, Brom. There's no need to fight him here. Yes. Yes! I see four. Or is that eight? There are other ways to deal with the schoolmaster. Other ways? Other ways. But first, more rot get barkeep for the house. Ha <laughs> <laughs> companion number four, I've missed you. You are the wisest. The smartest! Uh, I feel sick. Catch him, boys, before he splinters the floor. Oh, 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 no! This is my chance. Uh, you must admit, there is something extremely provoking in Brahms' obstinately pacific system. Perhaps, but what he doesn't know is that I am too conscious of the superior might of my adversary to enter the lists against him. I would be wary to give him the opportunity. Because you'd lose? If I did it his way, yes, but my way, it will leave a brute like Brahm with no alternative but to draw upon the funds of the rustic waggery in his disposition. Meaning? He will have to engage in the most boorish practical jokes that my youngest charges would consider to be too childish. Katrina will see his actions and realize that I, Ichabod Crane, am the better man. And so Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They harried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night in spite of its formidable fastenings of white and win window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy so that the poor schoolmaster began to think, All the witches in the country must hold their meetings here. No, no, Ichabod. Not let your imagination fly away. This is Brom. Stand firm. But was what was still more annoying, Brom took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress. All those who knew her must confess she never took a pride in dress. For one brown garment coarse and plain offense against the cold and rain was all the clothes poor Fanny wore, void of all anxious care and strife. She passed at ease a country life. Um, uh, uh, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I'm not even listening to you. So what's there to tell? I have it right on the tip of my nose. Which is on the tip of your tongue. A virgin to her dying day, ha <laughs> ha! Remarkable how I can remember these epitaphs, is it not? It is not. 
But I am just a country damsel, innocent as a prune. Why, I guarantee you the authors of these epitaphs could hardly recite them even if you asked. (laughs) 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 Oh, well, look who it is, boys. The schoolmaster and Miss Katrina. Good day, m'lady. Good day. Good day. I thought there were four of you. Only when Brahms has been drinking his rock gut. Ah, but he did not know that on account, he cannot count when he's sober. So we pretend there's four of us. Uh, Brahm, we really should be going. No good could come of this. Nonsense, boon companion number four. We should be neighborly with our neighbors. Why, yes, my good fellow. Uh, I believe we should be neighborly as well. And even the... Clabberdodgeons who moods <laughs> off their prosperity. Clabberdodgeon? He called him a clabberdodgeon. Clabberdodgeon? Mooch? Why, see here, Abraham. Look at him with those shovel feet and twinkly toes. He ain't nothing but a lubber. Lubber? Now, Abraham, I'll have you know my feet help me in the fields when I'm out. The fields? When was you in the fields last? Low poop! I am no low poop, sir! I am no low poop, sir! My mistake, my dear girl! You're a fuss of <laughs> He called him a girl and a fuss. <laughs> 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 He said lol poop, Ichabod. Everyone laughs at lol poop. And he called you a girl. Ah. Rom even had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in psalmody. Almighty fortresses are God, a bulwark never fails. Stop, 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 cut. Okay, who is not singing the correct pitch? Who? I say who? <clears throat> to review. Uh, now, one, two, three. Almighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never fails. Stop, stop, stop! Cut! I'm hearing a dog. Almighty fortress, and not you, just me. Almighty fortress is our dog. I, I mean, God. A bulwark never, a mighty fortress is our dog. God, a bulwark never, I knew it! Brahm is now arming the animal population in his battle against me. Oh, he will stop at nothing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. In this way, matters went on for some time without producing any material effect. 
on the relative situations of the contending powers until one until one fine autumn afternoon when Ichabod Crane received what he perceived to be his lucky break. However, as we shall soon see, it was merely the first strand being pulled loose from the gradual and decisive unraveling of his tightly wound and intricately spun, but exceptionally large, brain. In a moment, Cloak and Dagger on the Air will return with the second half of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, by Washington Irving, and adapted for our production by Pete Fernbaugh. We pause now for a 10-minute intermission. 